Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. You are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. And today we're speaking with Henny Fiskoheg, who is associate professor in the Department of Religion, Philosophy, and History at the University of Agder in Norway. Henny, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, Henny, the reason I sought you out for, to do an interview about this is that I read your book, one of your books, your, a, a book that came out in 2006 with Oxford, Clement of Alexandria and the Beginnings of Christian Apophaticism. And mm-hmm. that book is a, a great read for lovers of the tradition that certain aspects of reality might be unsayable in a radical way. But it also dives into Clement's practice of written esotericism and stuff like this. So that's what I wanted to speak about with you today. So what is apophasis, apophatic writing, etc.? Yeah, well, the word apophasis means uh, denial, negation. And it's not something that is specifically Christian or theological. You can use it in, uh, as it has been done also in modern times in different different subjects. Uh, it's when, when, when you meet something that you can't express. It can, can be... Uh, Poetry, you, you, something uh, meets you, but what is this? It's, it's a recognition maybe, but you don't really have words for it. Also, you have it in Buddhism, for example. What is the enlightenment, really? How can I express what happens when I am enlightened? So it's not specifically theological, but in my context, when I wrote this book about Clement, Clement is very interested or focused on how can man know God and in, and that's here we meet his denial of of this man cannot know God because God he says in his essence and that's another aspect because God is unknowable in his essence but he is also noble but then you have to you have to think about the knowable aspects of God come and says is Christ, the incarnation, especially. Uh, he also calls it the dynamis of God or the energies of God. But this distinction is later much more developed in the Cappadocians. So apophysis is really just uh, to realize that language is not adequate to express what you want to express. That's the basics of apophysis. Now, people sometimes talk about this tradition of writing in terms of the we are negativa or negative theology. But mm. I like apophasis more because it isn't always theological. As you've, you've pointed out, it can even be mm. quite mundane, quite quotidian yeah. in a modern context. Can you give us an example or two of what you mean from, from a Clementine perspective? What, what kind of apophatic statements does Clement make? Well, there are, there are many. Uh, and most of them you find in, in the fifth book of the Somates. He says, for example... God is above all speech, conception, and thought, as he is inexpressible, Aretos. That's one. And this is a d- dilemma, of course. We want to say what God is, but we, there are no words. Uh, and this dilemma is common to conscious of when he writes another place in Stomates, when we give God names, because that's what we do, we give, give him names. Uh, it's not in a correct way, but because of our helplessness, he writes, so that our minds may have something to cling to and not wander at random. 
Now that is very striking for someone writing in the second century. That is so yeah, to me that sounds it? so Plotinian,、mm. methodologically saying, okay, in a world where the nature of the ultimate reality cannot be expressed or comprehended by normal thinking, why don't you just shut up? You know,、mm, <laughs> or、mm. or for Clement, I guess a question could also be, why does Scripture constantly give attributes to God all the time?、Mm. You know.、Mm. You come up with a reason for didactic purposes, for the, so that limited humans can sort of survive and、mm. make some attempt to get near、yeah, to God. Yeah,、mm. it's a kind of accommodation, in a way, to the limited humanity, and that's also what Howard describes the incarnation, when God came as a person. It's not that everything is said about God. From what Jesus says, but that's the only way we were able to to take it in or to to、uh, understand something about what God is. But that's not all. Christ is not is not all of what God is. There are many ways that Clement tries to express this dilemma, and one is his his use of alpha privatives. So these are adjectives in Greek where you take a, a positive yeah, attribute, you, say. Yeah. Seeable, visible, horatos,、yeah. and then you add just an alpha to the beginning, which makes more or less, mm, more or less as we do in English also. Yeah, with un、yeah. or in. Now that brings us maybe to tradition, because、mm-hmm. um, you know a lot. It's it's very striking that you start to see these alpha privative adjectives in contemporary Platonist writers as well.、Mm. Well, actually, starting with Philo though, if you go back to the first century already, Philo is is using them in a pretty robust manner. When talking about God, isn't he?、Mm-hmm. And、uh, um, he uses a lot of of alpha primitives. There's one place where he brings together many of them. He says, "God is invisible, a oratos. He is uncontained, the a choratos. He is needing nothing. He is an epides. He is uncomprehensible, a kataleptos. He is everlasting, a enos." He is our poetos, uncreated, and are even more. So he's fond of those words. I haven't been so much concerned, or it hasn't been really my focus in my book. But of course, there are influences. When I use quite a lot of space to the Middle Platonists, that it's important to see that his thoughts is not in any isolation.、Uh, there is a, a milieu in his time. Uh, that he, of course, is is influenced by and、uh, is in himself, and he had access to to library,、uh, many texts, and this middle Platonic、um, atmosphere, <laughs> whatever you,、uh, I, I guess, he found something here that that suited his way of thinking about the divine. I guess a kind of recognition, perhaps, like we also do. When we read certain things, that oh, this is interesting, and and also why he was so fond of Plato, <laughs> because the Middle Platonists were very fond of him and thought they had understood him in a right way, and this way was to focus on Plato's religious,、mm. in a quotation, <laughs> metaphysical sides or aspects. So they, the Middle Platonists, they they.、Uh, They commented and highlighted on places where Plato spoke about the one,、uh, the one who is 
above above even being in in the republic and how uh, the father is unreachable and inexpressible in the tamayas and also the first hypothesis of parmenides the one is described in negative terms mm. for example denied of all attributes this inspired both pagan and christian uh, philosophers yeah there's a move toward emphasizing those sort of apophatic aspects of um, of plato's work within at least the higher ref- the higher regions of metaphysics yeah. in middle mm-hmm. platonism already in yeah. philo as well already in a religious context yeah. i should say with or in an mm. abrahamic context with philo everyone agrees that that clement read a load of philo that he was very kind of indebted to philo i mean we don't know what clement was up to in his early wanderings looking for a philosophical teacher before he met pantinos before he you know finally found the guy um, presumably he would have had an introduction to all the major platonic dialogues the usual aristotelian mm. stuff the usual stoic stuff all that sort of thing but um do you think when he read philo when he encountered philo it was ah this is the guy i was looking for in a literary sense in some mm. ways well uh, <laughs> i write in my book that i haven't really gone into philo because i didn't want to have a genetic uh, more, but more a uh, comparative um, introduction to, to Clement, and also that Anne Wiest van den Hoek has written so much about him. So I don't think I can say so much about Philo, really. He, he mentions him a couple of times, and I'm sure he's, he's also had his influence from there. Mm. Yes. So we're in Alexandria, this thriving milieu in the second century, with Christians, lots of different flavors of Christians, all interacting with each other. Jews, lots and lots and lots of flavors of Jews as well, pagan philosophers, um, and a lot of other people we could mention, all talking to each other, moving around and mingling. And (laughs) among them, there seems to be a concern when they start to talk about theology, when they start to talk about the higher realms of metaphysics, a concern with the fact that what they're doing is not good enough, that that God or the, the primordial reality will escape their thinking will escape their way their ways of speaking now given that context what's new with clement or maybe what's new with christianity or maybe both so what's clement doing with his apophasis with his um denial of predication to god that we don't already see in other middle platonism well i'm not sure if it's so new we find clement's thoughts new today in a way and uh, he was very much respected and uh, he was received in a positive way right after he, he died. Uh, but then you have origin and then and so on. But well, you find traces of negative theology also in the apologists, but their, their concern is perhaps not so much how man can know God. I don't think it's an uncommon or new way that Clement describes God really. But he, he is more articulate and he is he, he writes more and, and also it's more developed and even more of course in the Cappadocians. For example, he quotes a verse in, in the, the New Testament that says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So he found also in the New Testament things that had to do with his concerns about no, God cannot be known. No one knows even the Son. Uh, and but 
especially and he, he uses this a, a dozen of times this this uh, verse so and also in the old testament in in uh, for example the story about moses who met god in the darkness the darkness he interpreted as philo had that was meant that god is incomprehensible god is in the darkness for man philo clement and the cappadocians interpreted this place in the same way, not origin. Really? No, he did not. He says the darkness means that we are on our way to understanding. We will understand in the end. I suppose for Clement, maybe you will understand in the end to, to a degree. With Clement and with Oregon, you never quite know the end game, you know? No. Um, so mm-hmm. you've evolved, let's say you've, you've um, <clears throat> moved through the different angelic stages and you've become like very, very close to God through long mm. ages, countless eons of evolution toward God, then mm. what? But origin meant that darkness meant man's ignorance. Ignorance, yeah. But, yeah, but or- man's, man's ignorance, yeah. not not the God's uh, unknowability. It's man's ignorance. That's the darkness. Right. So it's not that so much God but, hides himself, but that we are just no. thick. Yeah, I think so. Although it amounts if to the I, same thing. Yeah, you know, in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, there's mm-hmm. God over here and humans over here, and a big cloud of unknowing between them. Yeah, right. Mm. That, that's very important, I think, to see that there's an absolute gulf between man and and God, between created the created world and the uncreated. This is very absolute in in a thinker like Clement. Now that's really interesting. It is. It's very absolute, and it's and on the basic creationist principles of Christianity, you would expect it to be quite absolute. There's a creator, there's a creation. Mm, 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 They're not the same thing. Mm. On the other hand, Clement has this, it seems to me, quasi-emanationist theology, where Uh the logos is, seems to me, and, and please correct me if you think I'm being too philosophically Platonist, because of course my background is studying philosophical Platonism, and I might be reading this in the way that someone like Alcinous or Plotinus would read it rather than the way a Christian thinker of the second century would mm-hmm. would understand it. But it seems to me that there is the highest God who is, as you say, unknown. There's us down here in the cosmos. And between us, there is this Logos, who is the Son, who is not created by the Father, but somehow in some way subordinate yep. to the Father, even, let's say, emanated from, <laughs> to use that metaphor. There's a kind of continuum of reality where the middle ground between the creation and the creator is filled by this this logos being, which sort of glues the two realities together in some way. What do you have to say to that? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Clement, I think, tries in different ways to express that the sun is also uncreated, but he still, he came to the earth. And so how to express this? He has many ways of doing it. He says that the Christ is the Father's face. Uh, and he also used a more philosophical concept of delimitation. I wrote about this. I haven't really <laughs> reread it now because I didn't think you would ask about Logos. But <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's, it's difficult and uh, to, to really grasp because he is more concerned with how can man know God? Yes, Logos is the um, the knowable aspect of God. That's his main focus. But he tries in many ways to express him in, in biblical terms. He called Christ the dynamis of God. 
and his face. I'm not sure if this is so Christian. It's rather yeah. more Enochian, it seems to me. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. like apocalyptic yeah. Jewish texts often yeah. talk about mm-hmm. the face of God. But delimitation is, it's not like origin, I think. Origin has a more subordinate uh, way of describing it. Interesting. In way, well, yeah. I know origin certainly gets in trouble post-Nicene uh, Creed yeah, for yeah. being subordinationist. Yeah. But um, I, uh, Clement, I guess, has been uh, accused of that. But yeah. I, I, I think he tries different ways to say that they, they have had they didn't use the word homoousios yet it was yeah. the Cappadocians who did so he wants tries to explain i think or to, to find words for how is the relation between father and son and he has some hints really more than a course not a developed theology about it so this term so, homoousios for for those who are mm-hmm. not lovers of um ancient theology okay. is basically a Greek term taken very much from a philosophical context, meaning something like sharing an essence, having the same mm. essence. And this was mm. used oh. f- for in the Trinitarian theology of the Ni- of the Council of Nicaea to express how the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all the same yet different or yet distinct. They're, they're homoousios, but they're different in other ways. They're, they're distinct mm. in other ways. So this is a very, very key term. And the addition to it of the letter Yota gives you homoiousios, which then means something like similar in essence. And then there's a whole other load of Christians who say, no, 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 it's homoiousios. And then much, much mm. ink and even blood was shed over the centuries concerning this uh, difference of an iota in this theological term. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. It, it, obviously, with someone like Clement, who's trying to speak clearly and philosophically about extremely difficult metaphysical questions like the relationship between the father and the son in in his theology you're going to have to take a nuanced approach you can't just lay it out but on the one hand you've emphasized that there's a there's a gulf between humanity and god and maybe this is a phenomenological gulf as well as a metaphysical gulf in the sense that we Mm -hmm. we experience it as humans on the other hand you can nuance this the other way and say well okay the logos is some kind of mediator he's the knowable face of god you know there is a face of god that is knowable so there's absence mm-hmm. and presence which is something we're quite used to from the general dynamics of christian mysticism i guess you'd say mm-hmm. um what kind of theory of language or because because especially in stromates he's he's very he's very much drawing on this incredibly erudite reading in greek philosophical traditions and unlike in scripture, where you don't really get a theory of language explicitly put out. The, the ancient Greeks were very concerned with, with questions of language and meaning and stuff like this. I wonder if you can talk about what kind of theory of language might lie behind Clement's discussion of ineffability of God. Mm. Well, uh, I wouldn't call it really a theory uh, that it was Clement was conscious of presenting a theory, but I, I, I think that everything he says about his use of parables, paradox, has to do with his view of the inadequacy of language to express the divine. When you don't have words to say, for example, who God is, you have to say it in, in other ways, in indirect ways. Hmm. And, and he, ha- he does that for, he says, for several reasons. One is that it is, you don't have words, then we have to find other ways. He would use parables, because also Christ talked in parables 
and also that he sees himself as a Gnostic teacher who teaches according to a divine plan, he says. And he can't say the same to everybody. Of course, everybody can read it, but in a way he um, realizes that he may he can't say everything right out. Those who are agnostic Christian and not very new in 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 the faith, they they will understand divides uh, in spite of his putting things scattered around, as he says, or spitting in writing in symbols. Uh, indirect ways and and so on, uh, so that's his in a way his pedagogical concerns. He sees himself as a teacher, and and things can be misunderstood and used in a, in wrong ways. So he says he will write with a double character. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah, he will reveal without uncovering, <laughs> and to demonstrate without saying anything. So here also is very conscious of what he's doing. And he's also doing something, it seems to me, very sophisticated from a, mm -hmm. from yes. a kind of linguistic theory perspective, right? He seems to understand a lot of stuff that, that many ancients were a bit blind to about language, like the way mm -hmm. it can express, or maybe always does, express not exactly the content of the words, but a whole kind of sphere of sem semantics or um, semiotics around the words, the way mm -hmm. poetry does, right? The, you can kind of hint at stuff. You can kind of nudge people with words in a certain direction where they're going to get something that isn't in the words themselves, right? So he's using mm. language to somehow get beyond language, the limitations of language. Yes, that's right. But he's also mm. using language to try, at least, to keep certain advanced Gnostic doctrines or teachings or, or interpretations out of the hands of people who are not ready for them, who are yeah, not going to get exactly. them. Mm. That's what he writes, yes. And I guess also this is the reason why the Somatis is known to to be rather difficult to read. Because <laughs> it's supposed to yeah. be. Mm, yeah. Now, Henny, I'd love to ask you about this. This is, uh, in, in all of human thought, I think my favorite place is the place where esotericism and apophasis overlap. So what I mean is in, in apophatic worldview, you're, you're going to say, well, look, there are certain matters that cannot be discussed by language. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. You can try, go for it, have a go, but you will not succeed. Then in a, an esoteric perspective, you say, there are certain matters of reality which shouldn't be discussed, let's say in a, in a public agora, because there are going to be morons who don't get it, or there are going to be carpocratians who, who take the secret doctrine and use it for heretical purposes, which are against the church, or for whatever reason, whatever your reasons are. So you have these two things, cannot be said, and should not be said. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they they link up and become one thing, but they shouldn't, logically, right? Because if something cannot be said, there's no point in trying to hide it. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no point in being cagey yeah. about the fact that God is ineffable, because mm -hmm. God is going to be ineffable. It doesn't matter if some, mm -hmm. if some carpocrations come and try to say what God is, they're going to fail. Mm. So mm. there's, do you see what I mean? Yes. And yet, Clement will talk about God's ineffability, his hidden nature and stuff, in terms drawing on the Greek mysteries. There are initiations progressively toward a greater and greater understanding of God. It's like he's surrounded by secrecy, even though logically <clears throat> we might think he's surrounded by silence. 
rather than secrecy. Mm -hmm. Discuss. <laughs> of course, it's something cannot be said. Uh, and But still, he, he speaks about God, but that's a, a common dilemma. But he's not one who hides things. Yeah, in, that there is a secret gospel that is not just for the initiated, like you find in Narcissism. But still, it's the something needs to be concealed for some people. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that there's a certain take on this in some groups of Christians at the time, where there's just a kind of elect who have passwords and secret doctrines that only they can know, and it's a bit like the ancient mystery cults. Like, there's just an in-group and an out-group. Mm -hmm. That's one mm -hmm. kind of esotericism. That isn't what Clement is doing. No, no. But on the other hand, Clement is saying there are certain people who are ready to hear... Well, for example, some Christians have pistis, other Christians have gnosis. And those who mm -hmm. are at the level of pistis, which he so calls psile mm -hmm. pistis in one, in one place, so like a kind of mere faith or, or basic faith, mm -hmm. um, yep. they're not ready for some stuff. Mm. But those with gnosis are ready for, some, for that stuff. So, mm -hmm. I mean, this is also mm -hmm. esotericism. It's, not, it's yeah, maybe not okay. so secret society-ish, mm -hmm. but it's still esotericism. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And that's maybe something that people have been uh, offended by, that, uh, that really Clement operates with two levels of, of, of being a Christian. But so we can, you can, many places you can interpret him uh, in this way. And also that his teaching in Alexandria, first of all, was for the more advanced in faith. He felt this was his calling to speak to them, but it's difficult to know. To know. But still, he also says that uh, there is no gnosis without faith. Yeah. And also that I think a person like Clement living in, in 200, there, there are so many things that... Uh, he, he says many things in different ways, so it's difficult to say he means that, he means that, but he tries to say, and in a way, thinks aloud. Uh, he hasn't the answers to everything, but he tries to, and <laughs> and th therefore you can read different things, different places, uh, like I guess also Origen, you, you find the same uh, with him, that did he really mean uh, the everybody shall be saved epicotastasis or was it just thought he had and he put it in writing but maybe it wasn't that thought through yeah. <laughs> in a way the the phrase uh, research theology has been used in the context yeah of yeah, yeah yeah he's exactly. doing research theology he's exploring yeah. possibilities and stuff yeah he had to because of, there were no dogmas there were no fixed uh, ways of expressing who God is. We got that in 300s, right. in the Nicaea and so on. So he, he's on his way, but he seems to think that two types of, not two types of, but there are different, Christians are different uh, in, in in ways of where they are uh, and how much they can understand uh, and, and so on. Yes, that's for sure. So what's going on, do you think, when Clement talks about God? or the, the approach to God, the, the process of coming to know God, to, to attain gnosis of, of God. We know that gnosis is not a complete understanding of God's essence because it's been made clear throughout this book five of the Stromates and, and elsewhere that, that God's essence is always going to remain beyond the human being, even after mm -hmm. death, right? And mm -hmm. certainly before death, you're never going to get there. But nevertheless, gnosis, well, let's call it knowledge of God in that limited sense. 
What's going on when Clement talks about the attaining of Gnosis as initiation into the mysteries, the secrets? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't uh, written anything about it in, in this uh, book, but I have read art an article about Clement's deification. Hmm. And I think the comment is very occupied uh, with the, the process that he expects a Christian to go through. And he interprets uh, the Genesis when man was created in God's image and likeness. We see it today more synonyms, but in the early church, there were several of the authors uh, who, who interpreted it as a process. We were created in his image, but we are supposed to be in his likeness. And that is a process. And that this has been a, an important aspect of Orthodox theology today. The man's deification is, is uh, it's, they talk more about deification than about salvation. And, and I think comment is thinking in those terms uh, also that there is a way, there's a process. You start with simple faith, but you are supposed to go on and also become more like God. Henny, uh, because you've just made such a nice segue into the Orthodox tradition, it might be good to talk about the afterlife of Clemens' theological yeah. ideas, about specifically with regard to the unknowability, unsayability of God. Because this is really fascinating stuff. And this, interestingly, seems even less well-documented than the use of apophasis in, in Clement in the first place. So there's your book and there's some, you know, good, good studies of the Middle Platonist milieu and stuff who really try to address the philosophic and theological underpinnings of apophasis in this period. But what we don't have is a study of, for example, Clement outside of, you know, very narrow patristics. And so if, you, if you're an expert on Gregory of Nyssa or something like that, you'll, you'll know about Clement. But for the rest mm -hmm. of us, we don't hear anything about this guy going forward in within Christianity. So mm. what, what can we say about that? No, that's, that's really sad. <laughs> mm. that, uh, I, when I started, uh, uh, I wanted to do something in, in early Christianity. I started with Origen, but I soon found out now I have to go back behind Origen and see who this Clement is. And that's, there wasn't too much written about him. And what I was written was rather negative. He was not a really orthodox theologian. He was a Hellenist uh, and who had unsound, uh, not correct views of Christianity. And the reasons for this is, I think, first of all, that he was in a way um, in the shadow of origin. And orthodox theologians, in modern time, they haven't, they didn't like origin so much because he says that God, man is able to know God. And then they thought that if Clement is the teacher of origin, which it probably was not, I mean, uh, uh, origin was like maybe 17 or 18 when Clement left Alexandria. But that Eusebius again, he, he wrote uh, and presented them as a father or, or teacher-pupil relationship. And that's been a part of the Nachleben. And also Fortius, perhaps, who, who uh, misinterpreted probably something Clement said about the Logos, and there were two Logoi, and one was not divine, and so on. 
Um, so uh, this is Photius reading the lost hypertypases yeah, yeah, of Clement right. and reading it as a strongly subordinationist sort of multiple logoi theology, mm-hmm. which probably didn't teach in the, in those sense. No, and it was a fragment he yeah. wrote, wrote. He read, uh, and if he had read all the works of Clement, he would see that this is cannot be interpreted like that. But if you isolate the phrase, you can have anything, really. Hmm. And in the Western tradition, there, there has been little, except for Catholics, they have read the Church Fathers. But in the Protestant tradition, nothing after Luther has been really in- interesting. And also for Catholics and for everybody, the, the, uh, in the Western, Augustine has been very domin- a very dominating figure. And he's not so much occupied with this way of seeing God. He, he is so much concerned with other things. And also his concept of God, like the judge, and, and which has influenced Western thinking, I, I think, a lot. Hmm. Uh, the God is a judge, first of all, and the point is to believe him so that he will not go to hell. Right, rather than <laughs> become him as much as possible in this life, yeah. which is more the Clementine perspective. Yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. Yes, but uh, I think it has to do with this coincidental things um, that comment has been has been coming the shadow and has not been well known, well read. Yeah, his theology is is not uh, sound. What about anyway. within orthodoxy, though? I think it it has changed in both east and west. The last twenty thirty years, I think, is much more interesting and much more read really uh yeah i think so uh, but it's not much still but but uh, when when my book was uh, reviewed i got a lot of credit for that no, this is i, I didn't uh, very few had if any had any negative um views of, of clement being not a sound theologian so, so i think it's it's, it's just changed a lot very much in the last years, in both East and, East and West. Isn't that your impression also? My impression is, is very limited because I'm really not okay. um, too au fait with what's going on in the Orthodox scene, but it is my impression as far as I can look at things. I mean, what's interesting to me is that the, the apophatic stuff in Clement is really, well, hugely influential on Oregon, obviously, or at least that, that approach. Is, is very much the one taken by Oregon. Whether Oregon is influenced by Clement directly or, or more just they're both products of the Alexandrian theological tradition. Um, and that goes on to the Cappadocian Fathers in a big way. And mm-hmm. my understanding of the place of the Cappadocian Fathers within Orthodox Christianity is they are to Orthodoxy as Augustine is to Catholicism in a way. Yeah, they're that's like right. the gold mm-hmm. standard of patristic mm-hmm. Truth. And they are deeply soaked with this apophatic approach that mm, we first find in exactly. Clement. So in that sense, there is a huge Nachleben of Clement, even if even if all of Clement's mm. works had been lost and he had been forgotten, he would still have a huge Nachleben in, in Christianity. And mm. not just not just Orthodox Christianity, but specifically the kind of Orthodox Christianity where mysticism lives. What they talk about is mysticism. I don't mm. like I don't find the term mysticism very useful, but Christians who are encountering that that darkness of God, or the darkness that God is behind, encountering that separation, that absence of God, and getting phenomenologically very 
worked up about this encounter yeah. with mm-hmm. darkness, yeah. you know, yeah. which, which we yeah. find very strongly in the Orthodox traditions. Mm. Exactly. I forgot that to mention, of course, Cabidotians, because when I started to, to write the book, Carmen, uh, and his distinction between essence and energy, which also is a kind of important aspect I write about, uh, this distinction was found in the Cappadocians, mm. uh, not before. They are the ones. but And this became a dogma in later Orthodox faith, this distinction between God's unknowable essence and his knowable energies. When I started to read comments, I, I wanted to see if this was really right. Didn't you find at least traces? And I found much more than traces. Uh, and so much that also like uh, one like called the books Ortis, he's an Orthodox uh, scholar. He thinks that they they might have read uh, Clement, and also that uh, you know when Clement left Alexandria just after two hundred, he went to Cappadocia to visit and to stay with an an Alexander a bishop there. Yeah. So, yeah. So why not? So, it's even it's even plausible. It's, why wouldn't they have yeah, read Clement? Yeah. Yeah, why wouldn't they? So I think there's a direct link between the, there might be a direct link in influence between Clement and the Cappadocians. Hmm. And then they they have origins in between who <laughs> they did, did not like or did, did did not embrace as they did Clement. Yeah. And then then you have the afterlife. But the Cappadocians are very important in the orthodox as you said henny that is a beautiful little external skimming over the the subject of, of what the what is a very very deep subject the unsayability of god mm. in clement mm. of alexandria but sometimes all you can do is say say the outlines of the unsayability it's like a, a bit like if you were making a map and you're drawing the borders of a country but you can't actually draw what's in the country you just kind of create the border and say this is where it is but uh-huh. yeah. to know to know what's inside you have to go there and and check it out yourself you know you know that's a very good picture of the way i i think the orthodox think about the confessions we have the augustana we have the nicene creed the creeds yeah that it's kind of fence around the mystery it's true what is said in the creed but that Everything is not said. Right. It's just to take guard and to keep it that that it's not something else. God is love, but everything is not said in the creeds. That's a good picture. We we don't really know. We can't really to the bottom of what is within the fence. <laughs> On that note, stay esoteric. Yes. Okay. <laughs>